Welcome to Tactical Recon, the place where we find kingdom-building strategies through scholarship, leadership, and action. And here's your host. Welcome to Tactical Recon. I'm Paul Coviello, elder of the Reformed Bible Church in Central Virginia. Sitting beside me is the Reverend Dr. Paul Michael Raymond, pastor of the Reformed Bible Church in Central Virginia, founder and chief executive officer of the Institute for Theonomic Reformation, founder and dean of the New Geneva Academy, lecturer and author. We're going to talk today about freedom. And pastor, I consider it a word or a term to be grossly misunderstood and misused. What do you say? Well, the question is, are we really free in America today? And the answer is no, we're really not. And if we're going to define freedom or the word use better liberty, we, I guess, have to go to the founders and ask what they thought freedom was. And Noah Webster defines it wonderful. In, in a, he defines it in a wonderful way. He says, it's freedom from restraint and not to be confined both in the will of man or in the body of man. And so when the will and the mind is at liberty, that is what freedom is. He says natural liberty consists in the power of acting as one thinks fit without any restraint or control. And of course, now we have to ask the question, are we in America with all the taxation, with all now this, the COVID masking, the vaccines that are now being mandated and discussed as far as a mandating for the army, uh, we have to ask, are we then free in our mind and in our conscience? And we have to ask two questions. Are we? The answer we say is no. And then we ask the other question, well, then how do we attain liberty? And I think we need to begin with the foundation that the only place where liberty is to be found is in in Christ, where the Spirit of the Lord is, that is the only place where liberty is found. And what that means, practically speaking, is when the societal structure, individual, family, church, and state are conformed to the laws of God, the Word of God, the law Word of God, then we can be guaranteed of liberty. Otherwise, we're going to be subject to the mind of man, which is mostly left unrestrained, tyrannical. You just said two things that I think are critically important. First, the term is not freedom, it's liberty. And you were correct, if I heard you uh, properly, that we are talking about liberty under Christ. And the interesting thing that you said was that we are talking about a liberty that is defined in terms of where we sit as a nation. So we're not simply talking about liberty before God as individuals, but liberty before God as a nation. And as we teach here at the Reformed Bible Church, liberty is conditional. There's no such thing as absolute liberty. We are either free from Christ, enslaved to sin, and the consequence or consequences, or we are free from the bondage of sin and enslaved to Christ. And the freedom we enjoy there is the liberty that comes from being under the yoke of Christ and not under the burden, the curse, and the bondage of sin. So we need to distinguish between liberty and libertine. Because what you're saying is we don't want to be libertines. We don't want to uh, be a law unto ourselves. And of course, that's what's happening in the nation. We're confusing liberty, true liberty, organic liberty, which is under God, with libertinism, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The government now is structuring as a libertine unit, as a, as a libertine structure. And they're doing whatever they think is right according to their own 
wickedness. And it was interesting. I was I was at a I was at a political event just recently, and congressmen were there. A couple of congressmen were there from the Freedom Caucus, and he asked the same question. He said, "Are we free?" And the answer, of course, and he laid it all out. It was actually no. But what he said, which was quite interesting, you you look at the affairs of of the state. And when I say the state, I mean the federal government, the United States, as well as all the other nations that have uh, rejected God out of their entire societal structure. So if you look at what uh, the powers that be are doing in the United States at this point, one might say, well, they're just doing what they think is right, or they, they're very uh, concerned about immigration. They're very concerned about this thing or that thing. And the answer that these politicians gave, and the answer that I believe is true, is no, they're not doing this innocently. They were doing this in a very strategic, very tactical fashion in order to destroy the the America that once was. And the America that once was, not, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, but as it began with the state constitutions of the Puritans and even the colonial uh, founders, which had the seeds of apostasy because of their enlightenment, and yet they were moral people. This government now is absolutely on track to destroy the the moral fabric of our nation, and again, because they think that they're God. So they're defining good and evil now. No longer does the scripture define good and evil. We're, we, we certainly know good from evil, and that's why we're going to be targeted in the future. But the government is saying, we are God, we're going to define good from evil, and we're going to make sure that we can substantiate that through control. And the, the COVID uh, debacle was all about control. The mask was all about control. The vaccines were all about control. Because at the end of the day, it's all about control. Who rules? Who dominates? And at this point, because the state believes itself to be God, they want to be the dominant force. You said some things that I think are worth restating. One, we are increasingly libertine. The people who rule over us are libertine. They're doing what they will, according to their heart's lust, they are seeking to tear down or to destroy what is in place. And it's important to understand that they are tearing down and destroying what is in place in order to replace it with this, with something that is wholly anti-Christ. So that what little remains of the framework of our nation as founded is giving way to something that is entirely anti-Christ. And to get to the series of sermons you're preaching on Samuel, this goes back to the curse that God visited upon Israel when they sought to be like the nations around them. They were established as a nation before God. They were to serve God in covenant with him and under the terms of that covenant enjoy a particular blessing in that they were distinguished from the nations around them. And yet they rejected it. They wanted to be as the ungodly nations around them. And God gave them their heart's desire. So I think it's important for us to recognize and understand, Pastor, that we are reaping what we have sown as a nation, and that the determinant and the cause behind all of this is a thrice holy God who is judging an unrighteous nation. Yes, we, we're definitely under the uh, chastisement of God. Uh, wonderfully, chastisement comes as a result of sin, but it's usually the goal is usually to bring back a people to their senses before God to repent and to begin to become obedient. One of the answers, and, and you know, we can we can curse the darkness all day long and we could talk about, you know, how bad it is and why it's bad and all of these things. Well, let's talk about some tactical solutions because I think we're woefully inadequate in our tactical response or strategic response to the problem. That is a theological issue. The theological issue revolves around the idea of, well, 
Jesus is going to save us. Jesus is going to rapture us out of this. And we really don't have to get involved in the the process of politics or the situation of the culture. We can just wait and, and watch Jesus come to save us. But the answer is the pulpit. The pulpit is the answer. The war for independence in 1776 was the the fruit, the work of the Puritans and the early colonists, which from the pulpits were speaking about liberty, freedom under God. And once King George III and Parliament decided to become tyrannical, they responded first from the pulpits, then from the society at large. So we have the pulpit. Once the pulpit is compromised, which is what we have now, we have compromised pulpits, not all pulpits, of course, but so many, so many, generally speaking, are compromised. And you either have in the pulpits now, you you have either theologians, academics, or you have administrators, which aren't really leaders, or or, or you have comedians, or you have sports enthusiasts, which give the, the sports. So you go to church to find out what the, the sporting events were that week and who won and who lost. Or you have the true pulpit, where you have pastoral leadership challenging the congregation to be the Nazarite warrior priests that they were called to do and go out into the world and be sure that they're changing the world by preaching the gospel, preaching God's word, preaching the law. And what, what we find is that the church is now sequestered in their, in their little church walls, the four-walled ghetto church, in other words. And then you have the other problem where you have coin-operated preachers. You give them a, you give them a, a salary and they keep the congregation happy. And that is the problem. No one wants to challenge the powers that be because they're afraid. There's so many things we can go into. We can go into the problem of the of the compromised 501c3 church or the compromised pensioned church or the compromised church which moves the pastor around every five years so they can't really lead their congregation. We can go on and on and on. But the answer is the pulpit. You're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, you were saying at the outset that we can't see this, and I'm paraphrasing entirely as a period of darkness. In one of your more recent sermons, you quoted R.J. Rushdoony, and, and I'm paraphrasing again, where these times of great darkness are also times of great creativity, great energy, and great work. And you're correct. It has to start in the pulpits. And sadly, as you pointed out, even very reformed pastors and congregations are not approaching our work in the world either from a strategic or a tactical viewpoint, so that the churches are mobilized. And I'm glad you went down this path, Pastor, because I, I came in here anxious to talk about a couple of things. One was, first, the church needs to know what it is striving for. In other words, what is the end game? What is it that the apostles were first sent out to accomplish when Christ said, go ye into all the world to teach and to bring the peoples of the nations into covenant relationship with Christ? And then, how do we go about it? My argument is that the Mosaic framework, which Israel rejected, is what we are striving for, and that the church, no matter what her different members are engaged in, in doing or pursuing in their evangelical mission, should be pressing toward that comprehensive societal and cultural model, which is entirely Christocentric. It's mapped out for us in the law of Moses. And what we don't see is preaching 
on Deuteronomy chapter 4, which says that we, or at least Israel at the time, and any nation that embraces God, they ought to be a model for the world. And you, you mentioned a few things too. What's the goal? What's the vision? Because without a vision, a biblical vision for the culture, beginning, of course, with the individual, then moving into the family and the church, but what what is the vision of the church? It's no longer the cultural mandate. It's me and my Bible. I'm going to get saved. I'm going to save my mommy and daddy and my, my children, and I'm going to maybe some people in the in the world. I'm going to clock in time. And that's what pastors are doing today. They're clocking in time. They're not really on a mission to change the world or at least to change their congregation so that they would go out generationally mapping out a tactical strategy. And so then you have from the pulpit's pablum, no longer the challenge. Uh, just recently, someone said to one of my congregation members, well, I don't like the pastor's preaching because uh, it's not it's not very friendly. Well, well, look at what the Bible teaches about when Israel went astray. That was not a friendly message that God gave to the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah when they went astray. No, and in fact, uh, those who are truly Christ's find the sting of the whip invigorating because it calls them to repentance and to reform. And truly, if the church does reform, then she will be militant. She will be culturally engaged. And the people in the church will press forward to fulfill the mandate given to the apostolic fathers. And whether they go into specific areas of uh, evangelism, uh, be it abortion, be it um, um, homosexuality, be it education, be it politics and the various uh, um, functions of, of government, military, the coining of money, uh, the legislative branches, the, the, the limitations on government, uh, be it the visual arts, the performing arts, there has to be a single unifying focus. We know from scripture that there is a point at which the nations will be subservient to Christ. That is the mission that Christ sent the church on. It is a mission that will be accomplished. The church will accomplish what Christ set her out to do. And that requires, as you pointed out by, by, by way of that very potent word, vision, but it also requires the church to be engaged, which means we have to shed the torpor, the laziness, the, the indolence that comes from being enamored with the world, the lusts of the world, the things of this world, and to be devoted in self-sacrifice to our Christ in service and in worship. And that means, as you pointed out, we are thinking not just in our time, but thinking about the generations that follow. Because we are building upon what was given to us, and we are to equip our children after us, who are to equip their children, until we reach the culmination of the age. We hear so many slogans by the evangelical church or any, any church. And one of the slogans, which I find quite interesting, because they say it and they don't live it. And that slogan is... If Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Well, what does that mean? Is not then Christ to have total dominion? This is the doctrine of totalism. Or is he just to have dominion over the church or over the family? So we have to think bigger than just family and church. Now, let me say this, and this is very important, and I hasten to say this because I find this as a real problem in some circles. When we talk about going into the culture, when we talk about raising our children, 
to be the next generation of warriors and that generationalism, which will bring dominion into the world under Christ's kingdom. We have to remember that a lot of people like to put the cart before the horse. It's a whole lot easier to go out there and get involved in the culture and try to change the culture and try to change the world than it is raising your two-year-old that's out of his mind and wide open. It's a whole lot easier to say, honey, you tend to the kids. I'm going to go save the world. The father must be a representative of God to the, for the, to the family and husband to the wife, raising the children to be warriors, not leaving the children to their own devices. And what I find too often is fathers or fathers and mothers, they tend to sideline their family responsibility for the cultural responsibility. And that's putting the cart before the horse. And once your family is out of order, everything you do will be out of order. So what we need to remember is, and when we talk about taking dominion for Christ, getting out there, being challenged, depending on your time of life, if you're a young family, then you focus at home. And when your child gets a little older, then you take them to some events that maybe they would be trained in and and they would see daddy and mommy serving at the church to begin with, then in the community. But you can't just leave off training your family and, and ministering to your family for the world, for the to save the world, because the world will be will be reconstructed. And we're going to use that word, reconstruction. It will be reconstruction because I'll tell you right now, the wicked are reconstructing our world. So we want to reconstruct it back to what is right. But if if the children see that that mommy and daddy have first reconstructed the family Godward and, and they're running along well in the family unit, then they can translate into working in the world. But be, be, But if the family is out of order, then everything will be out of order. You're absolutely right. In fact, I failed to finish my thought earlier. We talk about being multi-generational, and we talk about the individual, the family, and the church being in order, properly equipped, and then going out. I think of it as ever-increasing scopes of stewardship and custody over what, is, over what God has given to us, and to sidestep, I believe you use that word sidestep, if I'm correct, to sidestep any one of those spheres of authority or areas of stewardship to go out and do the greater work is sinful. And we reach a point where we have that grievous rebuke in Psalm 50, where God says, who are you to take my word into your mouth, seeing you cast my words behind you? And so we have a very, very, very difficult and, and troublesome road ahead because, as you and I both understand, so many people in the churches are out of order. Personally, their families are out of order. Consequently, they come into the church and the churches cannot properly be equipped because the, 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 the pastors and the elders or the presbyteries are dealing with the dysfunction in the church. And so we're not properly equipped to go out into the world. And we need to be properly equipped to go out into the world because we are not fulfilling our mission when our failures at the personal, familial, and church levels stunt and, and hamper our ability to do that greater work that Christ has called us to do. Yeah, and some sometimes when when individuals, Christian individuals, go out into the world to make 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 a difference, it it could tend to slide their minds into a works mentality. Look what I'm doing for Jesus, look what I'm doing for God. And maybe even to the point where they want to be seen of men. And this is very dangerous. 
this is dangerous for their their soul's well-being because we're justified not by the works that we do, but by the grace of God in us. And then the fruit of that is what we do for Christ, but not to be seen of men. To be, to be doing these things with the proper motivation. So sometimes we have to rebuke those that are going out there, leaving their families to, to, to rot. We ask why? You know, why, why are you doing this? Is to be seen of men or are you, do you have your family in order? So as ministers of the gospel, we, we have to have a multifaceted message and, that message has to deal with family obedience, family piety, devotions in the family, how to raise the children, what is the relationship between mommy and daddy, what is the relationship between husband and wife, what about uh, the, the intimacy between husband and wife. Once you have a lot of children, you, you have to maintain that, that connection, that communication that's important. And then how do you train children to be responsible? And I like the words you use, stewardship, scope, custody. You're giving them a custody of the church because they can inherit the church. Are they working in the church? Are they helping, you know, at, at the end of the Lord's day, are they just bolting? Are they helping? Are they, they sweeping? And we have the little kids here sometimes sweeping and doing things. And, and that's good training. That's where it's trained. Here's your training ground, home, the church. Then they're equipped. Then they're ready to go out into the world. So we want to be really careful. Now, one other point. Topical messages from the pulpit are fine in their place, but they can be very dangerous because you can pull out different scriptures to say certain things, and maybe the scriptures aren't totally meaning that, not saying that. Expositional preaching is probably the best. Going through the Bible, because if you go through line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you're going to hit on everything. You're going to hit on family relationships. You're going to hit on on marital relationships. You're going to hit on the culture. You're going to hit on the state. You're going to hit on institutions. You're going to hit on everything, sin and and repentance and, and chastisements. You can't get away from hitting on every topic that is necessary for the congregation with expositional preaching. And that's why it's so important to expound the Word of God, dig deep, expound, flesh it out, and say, here are the lessons, here are the practical lessons, here are the, here are the historical uh, waymarks of, of Israel and Judah's history that we might apply to our history. And then where is Christ in all of this? And how do we see it fleshed out eschatologically? So these are the things that need to be retaught if we're ever going to save the the church, unless the church now is slotted for a time of great darkness and to be going underground, I, I don't know. Hopefully not, but that could be the will of God, and we'll just have to have to see how that all fleshes out too. Yeah. Now I would hasten to add, as you and I have discussed, we don't think that time has come. We believe that it is time for the church to be militant. It's not time for us to be hidden in caves. We must go out. But you keep saying something that I think is amazing because it is the one thing that is foundational that, and that undergirds everything that Christians do. It is the notion of experimental Christianity, the application of the law of God, the use of the law of God to define one's thoughts, one's actions, one's decisions, how one structures one's family, how one structures the church, and how one interacts in the world, and how one endeavors to reform the world. Because as you said at the outset, the wicked are tearing down and rebuilding. That is what Christ has given to us, to tear down and to destroy that which is anti-Christ, and to build and to plant that which is Christocentric and Christ God-glorifying. But unless we are first steeped in Scripture ourselves, living it, and living it faithfully, we cannot expect to bear the fruit that God has given to us because we, we know 
that piety is not an end in and of itself, but it is a, the means by which we are equipped to go out and do the work that God has called us to do in the world, thereby cause the fruit that the work of the church is to be harvested or bear, come forth in abundance. I've always said this, and to touch on what you just said too, we only need a few. Christ changed the world with 12, and one of them was a devil. Okay, He was a betrayer. He was the fly in the ointment, and yet they succeeded to change the entire global order. What we're looking for is just a few good individuals with passion of the spirit on fire that are willing to sacrifice themselves, to put themselves out for others, to put themselves out for a vision which is beyond them, which is not natural, which is supernatural. That's what we're looking for. Very hard to find. Very hard to find because God has, of course, uh, brought some darkness and there's just a remnant. But like Elijah said, he thought he was the only one, but they were more than he even could imagine, 7,000. And I think that's what we have to look for. We have to look for those men. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the reason that the apostles were able to accomplish what they accomplished was that God blessed the work. You've said it yourself in the pulpit, uh, Pastor, and I love this. God destroyed the Midianites at the hand of Gideon and 300 men because he turned the Midianites on themselves. And we remember that the battle is the Lord's and we are serving the risen, the victorious, the coronated, and the conquering Christ. And what greater antidote to that foul pride that prompts one, as you said a little while ago, to take a, a notch in the belt to declare some sort of victory because one stopped something from happening or one went out and actually did something. The The work is not ours. The battle is not ours. It is God's. We are called to do the work, but it is Christ who brings forth the fruit. It is Christ who brings forth the victory. And there's no greater antidote to pride, to the foul fruit of pride there. I agree. One One footnote to all of this. God is also raising up frontier women because behind every man who is going to truly sacrifice himself for Christ, there are those women out there. And that's what we need. We need men and women in our day to have the fire in the belly and to change the world for the kingdom of Christ. Well, now we are seeing it. And as you just alluded to, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. We see the sparks igniting in places, not just here in America, but around the world. Christ has his people. They will do their work. And from the ashes of the decrepit and apostate church will rise a militant church who will do that which Christ has called her to do. He will be victorious because he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Pastor Raymond, it's always a pleasure. The Tactical Recon Podcast was brought to you by New Geneva Christian Leadership Academy and the Institute for Theonomic Reformation. To learn more, please visit our website at www.tacticalrecon.org.